Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that actually just correspond with some of the things we'll be talking about tonight. Um, before we uh, begin, I uh, the video was posted of last Thursday's um, uh, lecture, and it was 53 minutes long. <laughs> When I looked at my watch last week, I was so shocked. I felt um, terrible. Thank you all for being so patient last week and, and working through that with me. And I apologize for running on so long. We'll see if tonight I can keep that under, under 53 minutes. Uh, let's open, please, to Mark, the fourth chapter. We're going to continue with this uh, series of lessons regarding the parable of the sower. <clears throat> There's been some very positive feedback. I think people have found this helpful and encouraging. Let's open up with prayer. Father, we are so uh, grateful to you for your kindness toward us. Your tender mercies that are new each morning. for the loveliness and joy of your presence in our lives, for your faithfulness, God. Thank you for gathering here with us tonight as we've collected together in your name and ministering to us life. Uh, each person that's come that, that has come here tonight, Lord, has their own unique set of needs and challenges and yearnings. And I pray that uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, you minister to each need tonight, Lord, personally. I pray that we have an encounter with you tonight, and we leave here transformed by that. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, Mark chapter 4. Uh, Again, Jesus has um, publicly uh, shared a parable, meeting privately later with his disciples. He provides an explanation, beginning with verse 13. Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones beside the road where the word is sown, and when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. And in similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. And when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. This next category of heart, this next type of ground is unique, and I'm sure you're going to catch the difference here, beginning in verse 18. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. And these are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Here the seed has not perished. It has sprung up and uh, apparently remains alive. However, it does not bear fruit. 
this might be addressing Christians who have come to Christ. They've received Christ. They may even attend church regularly. But their lives do not yield fruit. Their lives are not revealing in the fashion that they ought to the reality of God's presence in their life. Now again, I, I believe that it's possible for these categories of heart to coexist in our lives. There may be uh, areas in which we are very receptive to God's word. We receive it and it brings forth fruit. There are other areas in which uh, we may not welcome it or we may resist its uh, truth and its meaning. We may, and, and, and do that unwittingly. I suppose in some instances it, there may be a sort of uh, open rebellion against something we read in God's Word, but I think more often than not, it, it is um, ideas which are not consistent with the Word of God. They may be the commandments or, or the doctrines of men or the traditions of men um, that we have received as if it were the Word of God, and so it creates confusion in our lives. Uh, and, and then in other instances, it may be, uh, there may be wounds. Uh, there may be um, issues at work in us that find us resistant to the gospel, and we may be puzzled as to why that's happening, and grieved that it's happening, and yet it continues nonetheless. Uh, and so it's important to note, I think, that uh, this category of heart can uh, exist commonly in the lives of Christians. The word has been received. It has not perished. It's simply um, uh, in their lives failing to yield fruit. So let's look closely at uh, these three issues, uh, these three distractions that impinge upon fruitfulness in our lives. <clears throat> and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among thorns, and these are the ones who heard the word, but number one, what happens? The worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. It's verse, verses 18 and 19. The, the uh, worries of the world, or the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. In Luke, the 21st chapter, Jesus is addressing the cares of this life and suggests that it can induce spiritual deafness, that we can find it difficult or even impossible to hear God as he's speaking to us. And that was the uh, urgent command in Hebrews, the fourth chapter, today if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. That was the imperative in the parable of the sower. Jesus said to everyone within earshot, listen. That's how he opens up with the parable. But he concludes by saying, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying. And so simply hearing these words with these appendages attached to the side of our heads is no um, uh, um, assurance that we will hear what the Spirit is saying. 
there's an attitude and a motivation which we, we uh, explored last week that allows a certain humility uh, to uh, be at work in us so that we're prepared to hear with eagerness what God is saying. What is it, do you suppose, about the cares of this world that might serve as a distraction? Are you familiar with cares, worries, anxiety? I mean, they're common, aren't they? I mean, we, there, there, are, there are, are issues which range from almost insignificant to extraordinarily important and momentous that can drive anxiety in our lives. Uh, I mean, if I'm ironing my pants and I get a double crease, I get a little anxious about that. But that's not a life-changing event, you know. When I had cardiac arrest, that, that was a different sort of anxiety. I was unconscious for most of it, so it was my family that worried more than I did. Um, but, you know, they range from really um, insignificant to momentous. What is it, however, about anxiety that enjoys the capacity to so distract us that we cannot hear what God is saying? I'm, 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 wanting, I'm asking you to explore this with me tonight. What is it about worry, about anxiety, that has that capacity to so distract us from the reality that is God and His kingdom? Well, we want to solve the problem. Why? What is anxiety? What is fear? What induces it? It's, it's an impending sense or fear of loss on some level, isn't it? That you're going to suffer loss, pain, hurt on some level. When fear presents itself, Jesus would ask us what he, the same question he posed to the disciples when he uh, was awakened by Peter in the rear of the ship in which he had fallen asleep. A storm ensued and, and the small boat was being rocked and, and, and uh, apparently uh, waves were washing over the gunnels and, and it, they were certain that it was going to sink and they were going to perish. And so Peter wakes up Jesus and he says, don't you even care, we're about to die. And Jesus rebuked the winds. He calmed the seas. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did he calm the seas because, in fact, they were about to drown? Did he calm the seas because, in fact, they, the, the ship full of men were about to perish? No, I don't think so. I don't think he calmed the storm because they were about to die. If he would have, he might have said to Peter, turned to Peter and say, what in the world did you wait so long to wake me up for? Were you going to wait until we were on the bottom of the Sea of Galilee? 
but he, he didn't. He calmed the storm in order to calm the disciples. And he turned to them and he said, why are you afraid? Now on its face, the question seems absurd. And indifferent to the suffering of the disciples. Why are you afraid? And, you know, if they were anxious and a bit moody because of what they had just gone through, you could imagine them thinking, are you kidding me? Isn't it obvious why we were terrified? We're fishermen. We know when lives are at risk on the open sea. This was very, very dangerous. <laughs> but they were silent. This was a rhetorical question in one sense, but I think he was really urging them to explore uh, the question. Why were you afraid? Why were they afraid? Because they were certain they were about to die. But he followed that question up with another one. How is it that you have no faith? That's the clincher. Why are you afraid? Because bad things are happening. Trouble is at hand. But for those who are walking with Jesus, or better said, those with whom Jesus is walking, should not be afraid. The psalmist declared, uh, he said, in essence, if the earth is removed from beneath my feet, I will not be afraid. That's a pretty dramatic statement. I mean, I have to admit, if I'm walking, I'm walking across the yard and suddenly the earth disappears from beneath my feet and I'm floating in the void of space, I might be slightly tempted to be concerned about that. <laughs> but David said, no. Paul, in quoting David in Hebrews 13, said, I will not fear what man shall do unto me because you are with me. Paul, in writing to the church at Philippi, said, don't be anxious about anything. Philippians 4, verses, uh, verse 4. Don't be anxious about anything. I, I want you to uh, say that aloud with me tonight. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry about anything. That sounds so silly, doesn't it? It just sounds absurd. If you were to walk into uh, uh, the home of a friend who was in the middle of a challenge or family that was dealing with a crisis and you said, don't worry about anything. I mean, that sort of remark could be regarded almost as an insult. Certainly an annoyance. They might wonder what you've been smoking. Don't be afraid. Don't worry about anything. Be anxious for nothing. But, Paul wrote, in everything with prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. Now the word supplication, it's an earnest heartfelt prayer, but it also means to depreciate. When you come to the Lord in prayer, you're bringing nothing but a problem. And, and that's kind of the rub of faith. To, to trust 
in God means we're trusting in nothing else. So we're not bringing any resources at the table. We're just bringing a problem. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But all of that is predicated on an attitude that precedes that prayer. He begins in verse 3 of that same chapter, Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And as if to underscore its importance, he says again, but, and again I say, rejoice. When? Guys, that literally means as we make our way through each day, we are mindful of his reality. And we are breathing, maybe silently or, or maybe just quietly, thanks and praise to him. When shall we do this? Always. Now, that's not poetic license. That's, that is a literal command. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean uh, that when you're carrying on a conversation with someone, you just one moment, thank you, Jesus, for all your goodness and kindness, Lord. If I did that on a business call, it might really have an impact on my business, not a, not a, not a positive impact. I recall once I, would, uh, I had I just graduated and I was, uh, I was working at a, um, at a business, and this, I was having this a gentleman back up to the bay, and I was praying, and he got out of his car, and I said, Father, I was much younger then, and he was an older person, and he looked at me like, what? <laughs> what? I, I, I uh, said, I'm, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke. Um, so it's something we're, we're, we're doing quietly. It's communing in our hearts with God. And I think prayer, Jesus commands us to pray when? Always. It is a running conversation, this dialogue you and I are having with God throughout the day. M much of it is going to be internalized, but it's real, and it is a conversation you're having with Him in real time, speaking to Him and, and hopefully listening for His response. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice let your moderation or your gentleness be made known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. That is the source of our confidence. The sense of the nearness of the presence of God in our life. That reality present with us. Day in and day out. Now it's interesting that gentleness is associated with this spiritual practice, this discipline of, of, I think, Brother Andrew. What was that, Father Don? The 16th century, Brother Andrew wrote, Practicing the Presence of God, something like that. What? Brother, what did I, what did I call him? Brother, oh yeah, that's another guy. That's the Bible smuggler. That's right, Brother, Brother Lawrence. Um, I, I had a point I was making. <laughs> yeah, practicing the presence, 
practicing the presence of God. This spiritual discipline is associated with gentleness. Our worst selves put in an appearance, typically, when we're under stress. We, it has a, 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 an extraordinary capacity for warping our personalities, stress does. Uh, it, it makes us uh, less attractive as believers, <laughs> less loving, less patient, less long-suffering, less interesting. You and I are not created with the capacity to bear up long under stress. It has uh, consequential effects spiritually, psychologically, and physically. Remember, you and I were created for life in the garden. That's what we were created for. So be anxious for nothing. Jesus said, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Jesus was with them in the boat, but they had become sorely distracted by the storm that had surrounded them. The same phenomenon occurred uh, when Peter stepped out of the boat. Jesus came walking to them on the water. Jesus, or Peter said, hey, if that's you, bid me to come out on the water and join you there. And, and, and Jesus instantly said, come on, Peter. I think, I think Jesus thrills at the prospect of you and I getting out of the boat and walking on the water, leaving convention behind, and following him where he wants to go. So Peter steps out of the boat. And he's walking toward Jesus, but the Bible explains, I think it's Matthew 14, when he saw the winds and the waves boisterous, he began to sink. What was Peter's problem? Distracted. He was distracted from Jesus, who is the author and developer of our faith, and allowed his attention to be drawn to physical and natural phenomenon. From the reality of God and his kingdom, his authority, his power, to the circumstances that surrounded them. And the circumstances, if you allow yourself to be distracted, listen to me, the circumstances will always seem more real, more influential. They have an ability to grab you by the collar and get your attention in a hurry if you allow your, uh, if you allow your focus to shift from Jesus to the world around you. What is so destructive about the cares of this life? They have the simple ability to distract us from the reality that is God. That is His kingdom. That is His authority, His rule, His power. It distracts us from His love, His care for us. It is the most common and one of the most consequential sins that plague Christians. Now that's a very powerful language, Larry. Sin? Sure. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So if you commit adultery, that's a sin, right? Be anxious for nothing. That's not written in the form of a suggestion. That's written in the form of a command. 
So if I disobey the command, it's sin. I feel really guilty. That's not why I'm sharing it. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to um, uh, ladle guilt onto you. When, when God points out sin, He's not trying uh, to um, drag you and I into guilt. He's identifying sin as sin because sin gets in God's way as much as it gets in ours. Sin, God has called sin those things which are ultimately harmful to us. Remember when your children are young? Don't, you know, if, if wood-burning stove in the den, don't touch the wood-burning stove. Don't do this. There were so many don't do. Don't do it. Don't do that. Don't do that. Why? Was it because I was trying to eliminate um, fun from their lives? No, I wasn't being a spoil sport. I don't want you to injure yourself. I don't want you harmed. Don't do these things because you could get harmed. God has called sin those things which are ultimately harmful to us. So when he says don't worry about anything, be anxious for nothing, he's identifying something that is harmful to us that will stand in our way as we, as we work to uh, walk in the path he's prepared for us and something that will get in God's way and prevent Him from doing the things that He wishes to do in our lives. You say, prevent God from doing something? Sure. Jesus went to Nazareth, the town in which He was raised. After performing miracles in the villages around Nazareth, He comes to Nazareth. And we read there that uh, there was almost, uh, they were puzzled and slightly offended at Jesus. They said, wait, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Isn't he a carpenter? We know this kid. He's a local boy. Who does he think he is? Their perception of Jesus was radically different from those of the surrounding villages. And the Bible says he could there do no mighty work, save heal a few, a few sick with minor ailments. It was because of their unbelief. And their unbelief sprang from a, 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 a perception of Jesus that wasn't consistent with who he really was. And that's often what stands in the way of healing or God's work in our lives. Is we have an image of Jesus. If you've been raised being taught that Jesus makes people sick, that God brings sickness into our lives to teach us, and suddenly uh, you fall ill, your first response isn't necessarily going to be to seek healing from the Father's hand. What, what, what is God trying to teach me? We can get in God's way. We can prevent Him from doing the things that He wants to do when A, our thoughts about God are not consistent with uh, His own word, or we are distracted from His reality. And our faith begins to wane in the absence of that sense of His presence. So, uh, we need to be aware that that is something that will impinge upon fruitfulness. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, cares of this life or the worries of the world and what the deceitfulness of riches. Now, we're going to take a moment here. Turn with me to 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter, please. 1 Timothy 6. 
Lots of ideas about money. People aren't really certain how we should view it. <clears throat> Is it a blessing? Is it a curse? Is it helpful? Is it hurtful? Is money the root of all evil? No, the love of money is the root of all evil. It's coveting after money that creates a problem for people. Money is uh, in and of itself, I think, entirely neutral. It's simply something that exists. It's a medium of exchange, and, and we need it. God understands that, addresses that in His Word. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6. Let's begin with verse, uh, verse 6. Well, let's actually begin with 5. And constant friction between men of depraved minds and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. Say contentment. There is a... a uh, a contest in every man's life between contentment and covetousness. Contentment on the one hand and covetousness on the other. Uh, godliness, when it's accompanied by contentment, is great gain. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Now that seems like an obvious truth, but in... Uh, through, uh, for, for a good part of people's lives, they live uh, either in ignorance of that or simply ignoring it. You brought nothing into the world. When you were born, you were born naked. How do you go out? You do. I mean, the, the undertaker, the last fellow to ever let you down, will clothe you <laughs> to hide that nakedness. But you're taking nothing out with you. There's no forwarding address. There's no, you can't move your, your wealth into, you can move it into a Swiss bank, you can move it into any number of banks here in the U.S. or offshore banks, but you can't open an account in heaven other than by giving. You're not going to send it ahead. You came in with nothing, you're leaving with nothing. Verse 8. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now if we stop there, we're going to have, I think, a, 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 not merely an inadequate sense of what God is saying, but a distorted view of, of uh, the manner in which God addresses himself money now he's saying something simple here those who want to get rich that is it is the passion and and a driving desire of their lives it's the master passion that rules them i want to be rich in fact there wasn't a, a popular pop song i want to be rich i'll spare you the indignity of having to hear me sing that but it, it was a popular song i think it's still popular 
but it certainly drives a lot of our culture, doesn't it? Now, how many of you have heard of this phrase, the prosperity gospel? Yeah, and it is a problem. It didn't begin that way. What happened to it? There was, in the book of Corinthians, uh, Paul addresses uh, sexuality more than uh, in any other epistle in the New Testament. Any idea why? Corinth, as a culture, was saturated in sexuality. Their, uh, their chief temple had prostitutes there who served as the, as the priests and priestesses. They, uh, so that was part of going to church. I think maybe the, it was a lopsided. Here in America, it's, it's a lot of women in church, not a lot of men. I have a feeling in Corinth that might have been inverted. <laughs> Come on, darling, we've got to get to church. It was a highly sexualized culture. Well, as a consequence, Paul needed to address the issue of human sexuality from God's perspective so that the culture in which they lived wouldn't serve as their source of understanding regarding human sexuality. Well, we are, uh, we are when God began to be systematically shoved out of the marketplace, out of the, uh, out of the public square, a void was created in our culture. And what rushed in to fill it? Materialism. We are a fantastically materialistic culture. I just am amazed every holiday at Christmas what Christmas has become. Um, and I, I fear that what began as a simple message that you can trust God for your well-being, your financial and material well-being, and God wishes to bless you, uh, became, uh, it, it, it morphed into this grotesque thing that it is today that is popularly known as the prosperity gospel. Um, Paul is urging us to acquire God's perspective regarding money. There's nothing evil about money, but those who, whose master passion is to be rich, he said, you are going to fall into many temptations and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Jesus said it simply like this, you will either serve God or mammon, or money. And if you're going to serve money, your ethics, your morals, are typically going to be compromised. You are going to place your own desires and your own needs above those of uh, everyone around you. You're not going to live as a servant to others. You, you cannot help but view other people as a means to your end rather than becoming a means to their end. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many griefs. Now skip ahead to uh, verse 17. Instruct those that are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who does what? He richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God wants to bless you. He wants you to enjoy this life. And He wants you to enjoy His blessings. But He said, these are the imperatives. 
do not be conceited or high-minded, I think the King James reads. Money doesn't make you better. In fact, if you think it does, the only thing money will do is make you a bigger jerk. And it will. If you fix your status to your relative wealth, you will be comparing yourself to others constantly. You cannot behave in that fashion and be a pleasant person. Your money doesn't make you a better person. How did we come in to the world? Naked. How do we go out? Naked. We brought nothing in. We're carrying nothing out. Whatever God gives to us during the interim, He gives to us as stewards so that we can do with it what He wills to serve as a blessing to others. Don't be conceited or fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. And money appears, it's the deceitfulness of riches. The King James says, money appears to offer security. It, it appears to offer a, um, a sense of well-being. It seems to offer heightened status. It doesn't offer any of those things in reality. It's deceitful. In fact, in some, I, I, it's amazing to me. I've spent time with people on the on the uh, on the far low end of the economic scale, and I've and I've spent time with multi-billionaires. And what amazes me is both of them deal with their own unique set of anxieties. Nobody is free from fear, no matter how wealthy they are. No one is free of insecurities. It's extraordinary. It's just each one has their own unique set of problems. And most people in both, um, in both situations believe money is the elixir that heals all. If you're poor, you think, I've got to be rich, then everything will be good. And if you're rich, you think, how do I keep this so that everything will be good? <laughs> Who is caring for us? God is caring for us. We're to not place our hope in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So if you have it, you live ready to give it. That's God's um, view of wealth. He wants to bless you. He's not opposed to you having things. He's opposed to things having you. Are you content or covetous? And it's not something we want to just deal lightly with. That's something we really need to examine our hearts closely with. Uh, uh, God said simply that he would supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. If you believe in that verse because um, your IRA is 
nice and fat, uh, there may be a problem. Because that verse is true, and it's promised secure for us, despite the condition of your IRA or your savings account or your checking account. It's true because God said it. And it, doesn't re it shouldn't rely on anything else for you and I to find um, perfect comfort in, in that promise. Okay, let's uh, get it again. Um, let's go back to Mark, the fourth chapter. We'll finish this last one up uh, next week. These are, aren't these, they, they seem so banal. Anxiety and our attitudes about money. And yet, Jesus is describing these two plus uh, um, the pride of life. He is presenting those as the issues, the three primary issues, and there's a reason why they tie in perfectly to Genesis 3 and with uh, 1 John 2.17, which we'll look at. But he's describing the three elements that dog every human's life until they find peace and rest in Jesus Christ as a present reality, as the eternal now. We have to reckon with them. If we fail to reckon with these three elements, it will have a significant impact on the quality of our lives as believers and most especially on our fruitfulness as believers. So I want to encourage you, um, if you took notes, great. If you didn't, the video will be up next Tuesday, I think. But go back to Mark, the fourth chapter, and read through these verses of Scripture and let the Lord speak to you through them. Because these three areas, when you can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through grace, through the Word of God, begin to corral them and make them work for you instead of against you, your life as a disciple of Christ will become profoundly fruitful. It will have a major impact on the quality of your life as you live it, on the quality of your witness as a believer, and most importantly, on your uh, intimacy with Jesus so that you can walk with Him day by day, doing that simple thing we talked about at the beginning, communing with Him moment by moment, praying always, having this running conversation with God uh, day in and day out. Father, thank You for this Word. I pray that by Your Spirit You would give us understanding, open it up to us, and Help us to approach um, these ideas with humility, Lord, and to acknowledge uh, where they, uh, um, how they may be at work in our own lives. And for grace, Lord, to move beyond them and to move into a place of real fruitfulness, uh, a life full of your peace, full of your joy, and full of your power so that our lives uh, become powerful and convincing witnesses of your love and reality. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.